0: All right. Good afternoon, everybody. It's time to get started. <clears throat> so welcome. If this is your first time especially, welcome. Um, like I say, we do this every week. And we, it's open to everyone. So I've had people ask before, can I come? Can I bring a coworker? Can I bring a friend? Yes, 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 and yes. This study is for everybody that's able to get here. And I know Jeff. When we started it, he wanted to be able to have a place where you can invite coworkers, business people in the area, retired people, anybody, uh, to be able to come and just to learn scripture. And so that's why we do what we do. We come and we walk through scripture here. And this year, or at least for the first chunk of this year, we're walking through the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book that um, people kind of read in parts sometimes, but never, rarely read all the way through because. Um, It's a hard book. It's a hard book to read. There's the first few chapters, kind of everything seems okay, and then it gets kind of dark, and then it gets kind of boring. And so that's what we want to do here is be able to walk through the text and pull out, uh, uh, think think of me like a tour guide, walking you through the book of Joshua and pointing things out. The application, how it affects, how it applies to your life is going to be different for every person. And so rather than me trying to say, and this is what this means for us today, is to just be able to say, this is what the text meant for them. This is what it said. Now, how might this apply to your life? How might this affect your life? And the cool thing is, Scripture is living, and it's, it's active, and so it will apply in different ways. But if you were here with us for Leviticus, we did a whole year of Leviticus, and every week there was something that applied in Leviticus our modern world, even in Leviticus. So if you can do that with Leviticus, you can definitely do that with Joshua. And that's what we're going to be doing uh, these months that we're in this book. So last week, we were in Joshua chapter 2, and we saw Joshua chapter 1 was Israel's marching orders. Joshua giving them the rally speech before they're ready to go into the land. Joshua then chapter 2 was an interlude, and it was the story of Rahab. And we looked at how it was at at the beginning of this incredibly... Uh, book, in the beginning of a book with an incredibly nationalistic reputation, you had a story of the covenant inclusion and salvation of a pagan gentile woman prostitute. And what that said in terms of getting you oriented to what kind of God this is and, and who, whose side God is on in terms of Israel or the nations. And, and God puts these little surprises in the text to show you, to give you these hints and these glimpses. You see them throughout Scripture. We've seen them for the past six years. We've seen them throughout the Torah. These little hints of righteous Gentiles, of people outside of the covenant people of God who somehow, in some way that is unexplained, have knowledge of God and respond in faith to that knowledge of God. So this should, this should build your theology whenever you think about the question that we get asked today. Well, what about people in the world who never hear the gospel? Do they just die and go to hell? Um, you know, we have to be able to take the faith of Israel and go, well, look, what did Abraham know? Abraham knew that the God of all the earth will do what is right. Will not the judge of all the earth do what's right, he asked in the Sodom and Gomorrah incident, implying that God is the one who knows the hearts of everybody. We know that God is the one who doesn't leave himself without a witness. We know that even in Israel's time, God was active outside of the covenant people, outside of Torah, outside of the covenant that that was written. So who's to say he's not able to be that way now? Who's to say God, the same God who created the nations, the same God whose mission of the entire Bible is for Israel to be his means by which all the nations of the earth are blessed? why would that God not still in some way that's unexplained be able to be active outside of what we think of as the church? And that's something that we just have to keep in mind. Does it mean that, you know, we don't need to do evangelism? Does it mean that people just be a good person? You get saved. say, no, no. Scripture's clear that sin is what separates the nations from God. And sin is what God called Israel to be the mediator between God and the nations. And sin is what Jesus Himself took on the identity of Israel to mediate and to do away with. So yes, anyone who is saved, whether in Old Testament Israel or today, is saved through the blood of the Lamb. But how that salvation is actualized, we don't always know. There are the people out there who are the Melchizedeks. There are the Rahabs. There are the Ruths. The people who come to faith somehow and we just have to know that God is active in doing stuff. So whenever people ask, well, what about people who don't believe today or who don't hear the word of Jesus? You know, people in the jungles of the Congo or North Sentinel Island or the Brazilian rainforest. You know, what about them? I just say, I don't know. I know the God of all the earth who's the one true judge will do what's right. I know He hasn't left Himself without a witness. I know that He, is giving, uh, he, is, he has given Himself to the world through His Son, And how that permeates and actualizes in every individual, I don't know. And guess what? It's not my job to know. I just know that what He's doing through His people, and I'm part of His covenant people, and you're part of His covenant people if you believe, and He's called us to take that message to the world. And beyond that, we just let God be God. And so that's something to keep in mind as we go through Joshua. Let God be God. He is the judge of all the earth. And so when He does judge... We have to trust, like Abraham did, that his judgment is fair. When he does judge nations, we have to trust that he has done everything possible. There's nothing that will have been left undone that God could have done that might have brought repentance. God will go out of his way, even to the worst of the worst of the worst people. He will send a Jonah to Nineveh. You don't get worse than Nineveh. And yet God would send Jonah there, Jonah who did not want to go to Nineveh, Jonah who I'm going to in about four weeks from now be in India preaching and I'm going to be teaching on the book of Jonah while I'm in India. And Jonah is a fascinating story because it's the book of the Bible named after the bad guy. Jonah's not the hero of the story, he's the antagonist. And Jonah says flat out at the end of the book, I didn't want to come preach because I didn't want them to repent. I wanted God to destroy the Ninevites. And and that's that's, you know, that's the attitude that God kind of puts on display through Jonah in order to upturn it and say, Jonah, there's over 120,000 people in this city. They don't even know their right hand from their left hand and their animals. You don't think I care about them? So we have to keep those things in mind as we read the passages in Joshua when it starts to get into judgment. Because if we don't, then we just come to Joshua with a blank slate and we're just like, oh, well, this is a very mean God. This is a very, what about the poor Canaanites? And, and we have to realize the type of God who is enacting this. And then we have to do what faith calls to, which is say, will I trust God? I don't know the full picture. God does. Will I trust Him with what He's revealed? And trust that He's the one in charge. And that's something that you can't really reason anybody into that position. Ultimately, that becomes a faith thing. How well do you know the one whom you serve? And so Joshua 3 is where we are today, gets back to the action that started in Joshua 1 after the spies have returned from Rahab and have scouted out the city of Jericho. Now, in chapter 3, we read early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim. And Shittim just means acacia groves or acacia trees. And it's the place where they were camped since the book of Numbers. So kind of at the foot of... um, of the, the, the mountains in what is today modern Jordan, at the foot of Mount Nebo. There's um, this, actually, we were there just a few months, or last year, but there's, when you're, the Jordan Valley, so the river, the Jordan, actual Jordan River, especially now with modern um, uh, dams and water diversion and agriculture, the Jordan River is basically a ditch. I mean, there's parts where you can literally jump across the Jordan River. It's it's just that's how it is. But before modern agriculture, it was fairly big, and there are parts where it would be maybe as wide as this dining room, maybe a little wider. But on either side of the Jordan, there's this flat plain, the Jordan Valley, and with these clumps of bushes, and it's just flat. It's like a riverbed, but it's you know miles across. And so the Jordan River, most of the year, it's just these flat, bushy you know area and then kinda oh on that side there's Israel and on this side is Jordan and you, you, you'd have to go through some bushes and some marshes and things like that to get across um, but once a year in the spring all the water so the Jordan River flows Mount Hermon so way up north in modern Lebanon Mount Hermon is a, a snow-covered mountain and the snow melts every spring and that's what flows into the Sea of Galilee and then the Sea of Galilee flows down into the Jordan River, which flows all the way to the Dead Sea, where the water then sits and evaporates because there's nowhere for it to go. Dead Sea is like the hole at the bottom of the earth. And so during the springtime, all that meltwater from Mount Hermon comes and the Jordan actually floods its banks. And so what is like a ditch or maybe a little canal becomes a fairly formidable river. Even if it isn't deep, it's wide because the water spills over the banks and just floods this whole area. There's, uh, you can see pictures of it. Of, there's some pictures from the 1920s that were taken in, in Jordan before modern Israel and the agriculture. And it was just like, it's like almost looking at the Mississippi in terms of just this vast, like, you know, not super deep, but just wide river. And so that's what Israel now is coming to. They're leaving Shatim and they're coming up to this, and it's during the flood season, the Jordan River, and it's fairly formidable. It's, it's fairly impassable, at least for a lot of, you know, tens of thousands of people with their animals and their little ones and their belongings. That's, that's a barrier. It's a barrier. And so, well, what God does, just like in the Exodus, this is Exodus 2.0, right? Think of the Jordan crossing as Exodus 2.0. The language is going to be the same, the theology is the same, everything. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim, and they went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people, and that's what had just been told in chapter 1. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you're to move out from your position and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Echoes of Mount Sinai. Keep distance. Do not come up the mountain. Why? Because God's unmediated holiness is right here. So with the Ark, what's the big deal? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was God's throne. Literally. It was seen as the throne of God where He dwells above the cherubim. So the Ark moving out is in all symbolism of the ancient Near East. This is God, the warrior God, on His throne, going before his people into battle. That's the symbolism here. And so God's unmediated presence in some way, in some unique way, is present when the ark is being carried by the priests. Usually the Levites carry the ark. Those of you that were here for Exodus, you remember the Kohathites uh, are usually the, from within the Levites, that tribe. They're carrying the actual ark, and then the Merarites and the others are carrying the other implements. And they weren't all priests. Not all, priests were, not all Levites were priests. All priests were Levites. But this time, it's the priests who are going to be carrying the ark. So this is not just the ark is on the move. This is something very different. This is a special once-in-a-lifetime event. The ark is being carried by the priests. God is on his chariot throne, and he is going ahead of his people into battle. He is about to do battle with the gods of Canaan. That's the image that's going to be taking place in this chapter. See, the Canaanite gods, they had their pantheon, and their chief god was Baal. And Baal achieved his status by overthrowing the god of the sea. All of the ancient Near East, we've talked about this before, how a a god would do battle against a chaos god, usually symbolic of the sea or the ocean, and and then overthrowing them, that would be what raised that god to its status. There's echoes of that in the Genesis account when God speaks over the deep and it obeys. um, But what's happening here is that God is about to march right into Baal's territory and he's about to do it by going through the waters. Very highly symbolic action. In the ancient Near East, there was things called trial by ordeal. In, in the area of Canaan, where if you were considered guilty or they didn't know if you were guilty of something, one of the ways of ascertaining whether you were guilty or not would be to throw you in the river. And if you drowned, that's the God saying they were guilty. If you survived, that was the God saying they're innocent. It was called trial by ordeal. So all of this is the cultural milieu in which this is happening. And now God himself is about to walk right into Baal's territory. And he's going to pass right through the surging waters. And he's going to do so for the exact same reason that he went to what he did in Egypt with the uh, the plagues and ultimately the splitting of the Red Sea. Why? So that all the nations will know that he is Lord of all the earth. Right at the beginning as his people are entering the land. So it says, verse Five, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. In other words, get yourself clean and holy, ready. So like wash, prepare, meditate, get ready. Make, set yourself apart is what consecrate means. For tomorrow the Lord will do, and NIV says, amazing things among you. And that word amazing things is a translation of the word for wonders. It comes from the, the word that means wonder or miracle. This is not just, oh, it's amazing, I got a raise, or oh, it's amazing, the food was hot today, or whatever, you know, it's not, this is like, God's about to do something that does not happen often. That's what's about to happen. Something on par with what happened back at the Exodus is about to happen again. And so Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Think back to the Exodus. What did Moses do? Moses and Aaron, go. Stand at the Red Sea. Hold your rod up. Then what happened? The waters parted. So this is... We should be prepared for what's going to happen next. Now the people, Joshua and Caleb are the only two people who are alive who remember the events of the Red Sea. Okay? So for all of the people, this is totally new. They've heard that God parted the waters, but it's only a memory that their parents, who are now dead, told them about. So now, God's going to do for Joshua what he did for Moses. And he's going to do it in the exact same symbolic way, rather. So, verse 9, Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here, listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, that He will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Parasites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Seven peoples. The seven peoples of Canaan. See the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth, will go into the Jordan ahead of you. That's significant. The Ark of the Covenant, now NIV says Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. The Hebrew actually says the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth. Closely identifying God's presence, God's actual presence with the Ark. Because it's His throne. God is literally, the Lord of all the earth, is going to go into this flooding Jordan River. That's what they're hearing. They don't know what's going to happen, but that's what they're hearing. God is going ahead, because God wants the people to know, remember, the whole message that Moses preached all through Deuteronomy, God is going to be the one to fight your battles. God is going to be the one to drive out the nations. God is going to be the one who goes before you. All you have to do is faithfully walk in his path. Faithfully walk in the path of the Lord who has already gone before you. This is no different than New Testament theology. All we do is walk in the ways of Jesus, who has already gone before us. He's already gone through humiliation. He's already gone through persecution. He's already gone through death itself and come out the other side. So we are called then to walk in his way, to walk after him, to be little Christs. Israel was called to walk in the path of God, they were to follow God. But he was going to go first. God's not asking them to do something that he himself is not willing to do. And that's what they see loud and clear in this section. He is going to be the one to drive out the nations. The the specific nations of Canaan. So, verse 12. Now, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel. One from each tribe. He's going to tell those twelve what to do later. But first, just choose those twelve. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, Set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. That word ned, is, uh, it's the word that's translated heap. In Exodus 15, it's translated as a wall, the waters stood as a wall. Uh, it can also be translated as like a pile, like a dam. And there's some question about what happens when the Jordan is cut off. Do the waters just like oh, stop and do they just hover and they can like look and see the fish swimming around in the Jordan waters? Um, or does the language imply that somewhere upstream there was a heap, there was an earthquake, the, you know, the water got dammed up and the river stopped flowing, and then the people pa- Either. And the language can go both ways on that. Um, we're going to see what happens in just a second. Um, but, this is, but the key is this is Red Sea language. Water's piled up in a heap. That is directly from Exodus 15. It's repeated in Psalm 78. which is describing the exodus. But in both of those translations, the NIV says, stood like a wall. It's the same word. So this is the, again, that's what I'm saying, this is the exodus 2.0. The exodus was the most formidable event in Israel's history. The exodus was for Jews what baptism is for Christians. It was their, who they were as their identity. So now this is the exodus all over again for this generation. This is the completion, what began the exodus. The first exodus was coming out of Egypt. This exodus is now going into Canaan, into the promised land. They will no longer be the wandering wilderness generation. This is why in Christian hymns or old uh, folk spirituals, the term crossing the Jordan was a metaphor for dying and going to heaven because across the Jordan was the promised land. And so crossing the Jordan was the last thing you do before you get into the promised land. So songs and images abounded of, you know, I'll cross that river someday when I cross the Jordan. And that was an image for dying, so going into the promised land. But this is very literal in this sense. They are ending their stage as wandering homeless nation. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, verse 14, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. This is springtime. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, which is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So now, this place, Adam, uh, I think it's Tel Adamia in modern uh, Israel, but it's, it's about 15 miles, 16 miles north of this, where they are, or of the Dead Sea. So it's not like they just saw, like, 16 miles upstream is where the stopping of the water happened. So that's a huge portion of the Jordan Valley. So everybody that lives along the Jordan River for 16 miles would have experienced this, this wonder. All right? so in the cartoons in my head, I always imagine like Joshua, they walk up and then the water just goes and it just stops and they walk across, but it wasn't that. S- 16 miles away, like way, like that'd be like from here to what? Mooresville or something? I mean like way up there, the water stopped flowing and that means that it stopped downstream as well. So this is a long and large and massive event, just like the Exodus was. So, it piled up in a heap a great distance away uh, down to verse 17. The priest, oh, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So just as with the Exodus, God's presence in the midst of his people in the thing that's the barrier that seems impenetrable uncrossable how are we going to get this massive group anywhere from you know 50,000 people to 2 million depending on how you do the numbers how are we going to get them across this massively flooded valley and God says well here's how you're going to do it I'm going to do it and so the priests carrying God's presence walk, and they walk right to the water's edge. And as soon as they go in, whether it was miraculous timing, there's six times in history in this region, there have been earthquakes that have stopped the flow of the Jordan. So it's not like this is an unknown event. Six times it's happened. The last time was 1927, and the water's 100-foot uh, 100 100 cliff face fell off because the Jordan Valley is the Great Rift Valley. I don't know if you guys know, it's the thing that it's like a scar in the earth that runs from the Dead Sea all the way down, or the Jordan Valley all the way down to Africa, the Great Rift Valley. It's where two tectonic plates are. So there's earthquakes all throughout this region. And there's been times in 27, there was a a tremor earthquake and a 100 foot cliff fell, and it blocked the Jordan River's flow for about 20 hours, 20, 24 hours, somewhere in there. So this has happened before. And if that's what happened, then it's not any less of a miracle. I mean, if, if that's how it worked, the miracle, the wonder, was certainly the timing of the event. You know, like everything supernatural doesn't have to be a supernatural thing. It can also be supernatural timing. And so just as the priests step into the water, the river upstream 15 miles had been dammed up. And, had, and it stops flowing. As, I mean, that's a miracle of timing, if, the, if that's what happened. Or if God supernaturally just put a force field and stopped the river. Who knows? But either way, it's still a miracle. And so God says, I'm going to go right into the midst of the surging waters. I'm going to go and do what you can't do. And then God's presence being there is what calms it, what dries it. And then the people are able to cross on dry ground. Why? Because God is in their midst. And that's the key to the entire theology of Israel that differed from the Canaanites. The Canaanites, gods were up there. You want to worship him? Go to a high place. You want to worship him? Go do something that will get the gods' attention. You want to hear an oracle? Go to uh, somebody who is in communication with the gods, either through the underworld or from on high. That was the, the surrounding culture. And God is telling Israel, and He's doing it in a very vivid object lesson, I am in your midst. I'm right here with you. I'm holy, so you have to keep distance. But I'm in your midst. You don't have to go up to the heavens and say, who will get it from me? Or down to the depths? Who will bring it up? Remember Moses' last speech at the end of last year, what he told? No, it's right here. The word is in your midst. So this is how we see. Now, we're not done yet, but we're out of time for today. Next week, they're going to remember this event. It's an important event, so they have to commemorate it. So those 12 people that Moses said choose from the tribes, They're going to have a role to play, but we're out of time. So we'll look at that next week. Guys, have a great week. There's plenty of food here. Take some seconds. uh, Take some desserts. And tell your friends, tell people about this study. Again, look at all these empty seats. These are seats where people could be experiencing this. So continue to get the word out. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next week.